Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here and to sometimes sit under Brother Jeff in chapel and hear his preaching, uh, to work with uh, Brother Steve for years. It's been a pleasure. Uh, the faculty and uh, also the opportunities I have with the students. Don't tell anybody, but I really appreciate the music down here. Um, I've spoken in different venues and in Ohio, and I've seen the same songs presented in different ways, and I'm just saying, you do a great job. So I, I really, really, really do appreciate that. Well, October 31, 2017, 500 years ago, a relatively young monk by the name of Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses, which is recognized at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And the world changed forever. Whatever you think about Luther, the world changed forever. Well, much is known about him, but I want to focus on something a little bit less known. Some of the theologues and Bible scholars will know of this, but the general laity often is not as tuned into this, and that's Luther's theology of the cross and his theology of glory, which relates directly to the scriptures that were read uh, so well uh, previously. And if you can allow me to take a personal moment and sort of draw you into this, this dimension of Luther's theology, which is extremely relevant in today's context, more relevant than many people are aware. It was in the spring semester of this year, and I'd spent quite a bit of time putting together a manuscript, eventually led to a book contract, and it had to do with things touching on Luther's theology of the cross. And then I put it aside, because I went nuts during my extended stay. Administrators don't get them study, don't get them very often. And I put it aside, and then not long after that, about a month after that, my father's health began failing. He was pushing 90 years of age, and so we went up to the hospital. It started out as a broken hip, and you know how that often goes at that age. It just led to another thing and another thing, and, and system failures. <clears throat> and uh, he, had, he had pretty rough days there, about 10 days in the hospital. And that was not exactly what I envisioned doing on my extended study or my sabbatical. But it's my father, I love him, the family was there. And it was really interesting. I think it was one morning, two or three in the morning, he had really been struggling. And I just kept thinking, what can I do? Because I was in the hotel room all, all night sometimes and then part of the night. And so I started playing hymns. <laughs> um, I didn't know what else to do because he was not responsive at that point. And he really wasn't doing very well. He, he was struggling quite a bit. And in the midst of listening to those hymns, the room began to change. I don't know how to explain it. His face began to change. I don't know how to explain it. And then I was sitting there experiencing God's presence in a way that I had never experienced God's presence before. And then I thought, Luther, <laughs> theology of the cross. This is not identical to what he was saying, but it does have an analogical connection to what he was saying. Because Luther was trying to say, oftentimes, maybe most of the time, maybe all of the time, you don't find God where you would expect God to be, in the glory, in the power, in the status, in the vestments, in the, in the position, in the wisdom of humanity. That's not where you find God. But often you find God most powerfully in pain and weakness and suffering 
and especially kingdom suffering related to the cross. And in that moment, what I'd been writing about for months became a little bit more personal because Luther was trying to say, that's where it's at. That's what matters. That's how you find God. So let's jump in a little bit because it's easy to wrestle with which Luther we're really talking about. You have one Luther, which you can perhaps call the Luther of glory, and you know the stories about the Luther of glory. He's the, I don't know, the theological John Wayne, if you're old, um, sort of action figure. By the way, in 2015, about a year and a half ago, a German toy company began selling Luther miniatures with this huge smile on uh, the face of Luther, which probably is making Luther, you know, turn in his grave. And it, it just went off the shelf like crazy. They could not keep up with the demand for that. That was in the Christianity Today article today, by the way. It just caught my attention. And we often identify with Luther as this courageous individual, and that's true. I had a buddy, a professor, who was always arguing in every meeting. He's always the first one to speak up. He's always arm wrestling. He's always exploding for justice and righteousness and what is true and what is the word of God. I finally just started calling him Luther. That's one dimension of Luther, you know, the, the uh, bull in the, in the china shop. That was my buddy. And so we have these many stories about the courageous Luther, and they've been portrayed in movies, and that's all true. And you know many of the stories. You know the story about Luther and the 95 Theses. And you know about how he challenged the church of his day and the state power union of that particular day. I like the little picture with Luther nailing the 95 Theses, and the uh, caption belief it is, Luther nailed it, trying to communicate that he, he got the right idea. You also know about Luther being excommunicated, essentially, by the Pope in the, the papal bull, Exerge Domine, that was sent out to Luther. And you know Luther read that, and he did not find one word of, of Scripture that condemned him, and so he burned the papal bull and excommunicated the Pope. Why not? The Pope excommunicates you. Why not just excommunicate the Pope? That's the Luther we know. Too bad for Pope Leo. We also know about the story of the diet or the diet of worms in German. Up in Kentucky, they call it the dot worms. But it's the, it's the imperial gathering to address the challenges that Luther had brought to the church. And we know about his courage. And we know about the famous phrase, here I stand. And the scholars debate whether he ever said it. I think the best scholarship says he probably said something like that at this council. He certainly said he's captive to the word of God and bound to the word of God and bound to conscience. And at the time he would have said that, there were so many people pressing in and so much clamor. It was in the evening and there were torches and the room was completely crowded. And it's quite possible that the person recording, because the Germans, you know, they record everything. Um, the recorder actually caught it, but not everybody in the room heard it, and it came out in the wood carvings very quickly after the event. So in any event, we know about him saying, here I stand, I can do nothing else, I will not recant of my writings. You want me to take them as a whole, I can't divide them up and say, this one is scriptural and that one is not scriptural, because some of them are probably closer to scripture than others are, and therefore I cannot and I will not recant. And remember, he had already been accused of being another John Huss who had been burned at the stake um, 
just a tad over 100 years before Luther's birth. So we know that Luther, bound by Scripture, bound captive to the Word of God. And then we know that Luther went on with the Protestant Reformation. We'll talk about some other factors in his life. He married a nun. I know that doesn't shock you, or maybe it does, but he marries a nun. That was certainly shocking in that particular day. And we know that uh, in Luther fashion, he talked about uh, this nun that he married as his, uh, his rib and uh, his lord and his chain. So Luther was indeed an explosive personality. But more importantly, he talked about marriage as a school for character. Amen? School for character. Well, that's the Luther that you might say the Luther of glory, glory in the good sense, because Luther did talk about glory in the good sense. Not very often. He usually talked about theology of glory in a bad sense. We also know about the Luther of the table talk. But then later in his life, you might have seen Luther stepping into the glory in the negative sense that he even used it. Um, his anti-Semitism, which most people are familiar with. Or even earlier on, you could hearken back to when the peasants revolted and Luther wanted to save the Reformation by siding with the German princes, and he wrote a little essay called Against the Thieving and Murdering Hordes, in which he encouraged to stab, smite, and slay them as you would a mad dog. Well, at that point, he probably was trying to protect the Reformation, but probably identifying more with theology of glory and theology of power. But then there's this other Luther, Luther number two, behind door number two. And this is the Luther that was troubled at times. This is the Luther that was fearful of a wrathful God. This is the Luther that spent six hours or more confessing to Staupitz. And finally, Staupitz said, go out and do something worth confessing and come back. He's a very sensitive individual. He did not feel he could please God. God was righteous. God was holy. How could he possibly stand before a righteous God? The other monks, or the monkeys, uh, called him a gold bricker which meant that he was pretending to be something valuable as a monk, but in reality, he was trying to get out of work by doing all these confessions. <laughs> he had this conflict with his father that most of you are aware of, aware of. Eric Erickson, the psychologist, made quite a big deal out of that. Clearly, his father was stern. He was going to go into law. Uh, Luther feared the, the righteous God that he could not play, uh, please. Uh, his father was a minor and in a mining community, and uh, according to the tradition, a lightning bolt scared Luther's horse, and Luther was thrown, and Luther's response is, of course, St. Anne, the patron saint of the miners, St. Anne, I will become a monk. So there's this other aspect of Luther, the digestive challenges that Luther had, because he seemed to be so uptight and so nervous. Um, the onfectungen, or the onfectung that Luther experienced, the the infinitely deep moments of spiritual despair where he felt that there was no way he could possibly please God. That's the other Luther. Staupitz told him, quit your theology for a while and go study the Bible. So Luther went to the tower in the monastery, which was close apparently to where the toilet was. And Luther spent hours and hours and hours and hours studying scripture. And as he's studying Romans 1, particularly Romans 1.17, he comes to the conclusion that the righteousness, or if you prefer, the justice that God demands, guess what? He also provides. Now, maybe he took it a little too far. For those of your theologians with a total alien righteousness, we don't really have time to discuss that tonight. But the point is, Luther began to realize that the standard of righteousness or justice that God required, God also provided because Luther had tried everything. He had tried the relics. He had tried going to Rome. He had tried confessing. Somebody said, quit trying. 
Just love God like a mystic. Just love God and sense your union with God. And this troubled Luther said, love God, I hated God. So this is the Luther behind door number two. They're actually quite well connected. Luther even talks about this discovery where he is released from bondage in language relating to the toilet. That's why some Roman Catholic friends like to tell me that the Protestant Reformation began on a toilet because he uses the term release because he's, he's released from this burden of trying to please a righteous God in his own efforts and by his own ability. We won't spend a whole lot of time on that. <laughs> the righteousness God demands, he also supplies. But this is where it gets kind of cool to me because I, I, took, I took courses in Luther and I just don't remember the professors talking a whole lot about that. This two Luther, these two Luthers that really are one Luther because really Luther number two behind door number two, battling with the devil, struggling, struggling the night before he said, here I stand. The Luther of the struggle is what produced the Luther of courage that changed the history of the world. The two are really connected together. Let me try to explain why. Luther's emerging discovery is that Christ was found not at Rome, he thought maybe Christ would be found there, that he could learn to know God and love God in Rome. Christ is not found in the relics. Christ is not found in glorious power. Christ is not found in the cardinals or the vestments or the royal robes or in works or even in human wisdom. He tried all these things. Christ is not even found in pretending that we're one with God and we just need to experience our oneness with God. That is not where Christ is found. For Luther, what he found is there's only one place you can truly find and know God in Christ, and that is in the cross. And it's through faith. And so for Luther, sola fide, which means what? Anybody? It's via the cross. So the via dolorosa is the way to know God. You can try all these other ways, but you're not going to find it. Sola Christi, Christ alone, of course, is in the cross. So the scripture points to the cross and when preached brings us into the reality or the orbit of the cross of Jesus Christ. And of course, it all boils down to the true glory of God, Soli Dea Gloria, is only found through Christ, not through our works, not through church, not through any other means. He went on to fully develop his theology of the cross. And I won't get overly philosophical here, but what he affirmed over and over again is that the cross of Christ was a soteriological singularity. Christ is the only way a person can be saved. He affirmed that Christ alone was an epistemological singularity. The only way you could really know God, as good as wisdom or reason might be in some ways, it actually can lead you astray if you don't find God through the cross. So the cross is a soteriological singularity. It stands alone. The cross is a soteriological singularity. It's the only way to truly know God. And so this redefines wisdom and knowledge. It means that human wisdom takes us away from the cross. True wisdom finds Christ in the cross and finds God in the cross. Now understand what Luther's trying to say here. He's drawing a lot, a lot on the Pauline literature. What Luther's saying, and I'll try to help out Luther a little bit here. 
What Luther is saying, folks, is that in an upside-down world where human beings are fallen, that which we call wisdom leads us away from God. In an upside-down world, Christ is crucified. In an upside-down world, we call folly wisdom. Are you with me? In an upside-down world, guess what? Wisdom is folly, and folly is wisdom, because we invert both of those realities. Luther goes on to pull this together because there are many nuances to what he's saying. The theology of the cross is an anchor for his entire theology. Everything integrates around that anchor of the theology of the cross. The theology of the glory leads us astray in terms of finding God and serving him. The theology of the cross even includes purgation, Poor Luther's mother, she got sick and she was suffering. And Luther said, understand that it's often in the suffering and it's in the darkness where you actually can find God. So shut up, mom, quit complaining. That's Luther. He went pretty far with this. Karl Barth actually got mad at Luther. Did you know that, even though he comes out of that tradition? <laughs> Karl Barth's library, the greatest theologian, some say, of the 20, 20th century, and some say his enduring influence makes him perhaps one of the greatest theologians today. Karl Barth took this ornamental rug and hung it over all of Luther's books. Why? Because Luther was so strong on this point that Barth got the impression that Luther caused modern thought to think that God was completely inaccessible. Luther did not adequately emphasize, according to Barth, that God can be known through revelation. Luther, according to Bart, went too far in, obsc in obscuring God or talking about the hidden God or the God that cannot be found, and therefore Luther contributed to the modern atheism and nihilism. In other words, some see Bart as saying that Luther led to nihilism. Well, I don't know. I think if you read the Heidelberg Catechisms very carefully, Luther may not be quite that extreme. And Luther may actually have more in common with Barth about the, the revelational cent centrality there. Okay, does any of this relate to Scripture? <laughs> I hope so. So, I set the table, and now we can drill down into Scripture, and I think we can pull a lot of things together. So, which Luther? Which Luther is it? You know, is it the action figure, the courageous figure, or is it the Luther of the cross? Is it the Luther of glory, defined in a negative sense, or is it the Luther of the cross defined in a positive sense? Well, I think if you define glory properly and if you define cross properly, then the answer is to which is it is uh, Karl Barth's Ja und Nein. They really go together. It is because of Luther's experience with the cross and finding God in the cross that birthed someone with the courage to take on what he believed was a religious establishment that was not pointing people to the cross, but was pointing them to a theology of glory and other avenues to find salvation. I think the two are one in that respect. Within that context, I think Matthew 26, which you all read beautifully, in fact, the additions to it were fantastic as well. It really brought it alive. I think Matthew 26 really jumps out at us. If you want to follow it on Matthew 26, that's fine. I'm going to move rather quickly. It means that the theology of the cross suggests that the way to true glory and to the true kingdom involves being grieved 
and distressed. Or if you add Luke 22, 44, being in agony. Understand where Luther's taking us. If our ministries are to change the world and make a difference, it has to be via Dolorosa. Can you think of any preachers that are trying to get there some other way? may say more about that in a minute. Christ in the garden was deeply grieved. For Luther, this is the Via Dolorosa that leads to the true kingdom. Grieved to the point of death. That's the theology of the cross. In the garden, you have Christ sweating drops of blood. which, according to many scientists, actually can happen. There aren't many cases of it. It's very rare, and I think the fact that it's very rare suggests the type of overwhelming burden that our Savior was carrying before the crucifixion. The sweat became drops of blood. The theology of the cross means that in the garden, well, think about it, the inner core disciples were what? Asleep. Yeah. Now, remember, they were all in when there was the transfiguration, right? That's all good. Got the transfiguration. Let's build some tents. The inner core of disciples was there. They were all in on that. But when it came to the way of the cross, they kept resisting it. Peter resisted it. Not seeing ministry as defined in terms of a theology of the cross. The reality is, according to many evangelical scholars, Millard Erickson to name one, evangelicals tend to be docetic. They don't fully acknowledge the humanity and suffering as Christ, just as liberals tend to be Ebionite. They don't fully acknowledge the deity of Christ. Must have been in a lecture recently. Woohoo! <laughs> I got paid 10 bucks to do that. As you all demonstrated so well in the reading, the theology of the cross means this overwhelming let this cup pass, but not. Yeah, yeah, that's at the heart of ministry. It includes what you also read, Matthew 27, the darkness at the crucifixion and the sense of being utterly forsaken and quoting the Psalms because that adequately portrays the moment of the cross. Well, let me help Luther just a little more. <laughs> he hinted at this. If you go to the Johannine literature, John 12, in John 17, you find something very interesting. There is good glory, and it includes the glory of the cross, where Christ is lifted up like the serpent figure in the desert. And everyone that looked at the serpent figure, what? Was healed. Yeah. Jesus talked about, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In John 17, Jesus says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth by having accomplished the work which you have given to me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here's the point. The Via Dolorosa leads to true kingdom and true glory. The way to true glory is through the cross. Think about the kingdom math, the math for the kingdom. God is cruci crucified. God incarnate is crucified in an upside-down world. 
In Corinthians, the kingdom bath emphasizes that wisdom in an upside-down world is folly, as we mentioned, and folly in an upside-down world is viewed as wisdom. Think about that as a context for ministry. It's pretty powerful. Luther wanted us to preach this and to live this. That the cross, the cross and resurrection, because he did combine those together, but he was emphasizing the cross in response to works righteousness. The cross, sort of the D-Day of the kingdom D-Day, is what leads to the true glory and to to the true kingdom. So the theology of the cross involves sweating blood. The theology of the cross involves doubt, a sense of forsakenness. The theology of the cross involves staying awake. It involves agonizing with others who are in agony. The theology of the cross certainly means experiencing the overwhelming sense of despair. That's part of our ministry and who we are. Let's get a little more into the meddling. (laughs) The theology of the cross means as a minister or as a layperson, You can do everything right. In fact, if you do everything right, you may end up being crucified. It's a very different understanding of ministry. The theology of the cross means that the wrong person may have the big church with all the people and the high salary. The theology of the cross means that the wrong person may become president of an organization or a country. I can probably get a Republican amen, and I can probably get a Democratic amen. I don't know how to communicate this, but having been in Christian organizations for 25 years, if you don't get that, it can kill your ministry. Wrong decisions will be made. Wrong people will be promoted. There are people who have big churches and have smiles where their teeth sparkle and tell you that there is no cross in Christianity. I'm not going to name any names or cities, but I think you get my point. This one intrigues me. According to pretty strong tradition, Peter was crucified upside down. That actually means he was crucified right side up in an upside down world. And that was Peter's ministry. The theology cross means that voluntary weakness is what leads to the kingdom and glory. The theology of the cross means that kingdom suffering is glorious suffering if defined properly. The theology cross means that true glory is only via the cross. The true kingdom is only via the cross. The theology of the cross means that kingdom advance is only through the cross. The theology of the cross means that the way to the tomb and the glorious resurrection is through the cross, and they are inseparable. The theology of the cross, according to Luther, means, of course, the church is reformed, but it's ever being reformed under the authority of Scripture. Sola Christi is in the cross and through the cross. Sola Fide is in the cross and through the cross. Sola Gratia is in the cross and through the cross. Sola Scriptura reveals the cross. Sola Deo Gloria is only through the cross. Years ago, I spoke down in Georgia on the Red Hills of Georgia, and I was toying around with this idea. After the sermon, a large group came up, and they said, 
My sermon reminded them of Peter Marshall. I had no idea who they were talking about. I found out later that was a compliment. A week later, I found out from the pastor that when I was telling people that there are certainly blessings in Christ and the Christian faith can make a positive difference in the world, it is also the case that those who follow Christ and follow the cross often find God in the darkest of places and are led to the darkest of places. But in those dark places, as Corey Tim Boom put it so well, there's no place so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And the other group, the pastor told me later, had roast preacher after the service because they were in a church that was convinced that if you follow Christ, then you're healthy and you're wealthy and you're happy and you're in right and you're upright and you're outright and you're downright happy all the time. Luther does not deny that that's part of the Christian faith or part of the gospel. What he does say that in a fallen world and in an upside-down world, it is indeed Christ being found in the cross, God being found in the cross, God being found in the pain and the suffering. Sometimes the most distinct moments of God's presence are found in the least expected places. I've been to great retreats, concerts. I even had some concerts and Christian concerts. It's all good where the altar was lined with people coming to faith in Christ. But if you'll let me speak from my heart, it was in my father's room when he was passing away at 2 or 3 in the morning, listening to some hymns, even some music that we heard here today, that I found a presence of God that to me is much more transformative than any other experience that I've ever had. Here I stand at the foot of the cross. I can do nothing else. 